You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try. Fraud, identity theft, electronic destruction, and even fake wellness bloggers. Some criminals use a knife or a gun, and some prefer a very specific weapon, the internet. There used to be a clear line between our online lives and the real world. But as we settle into the digital age, it can be harder to distinguish between cyberspace and the life world. Find us on any podcatcher as Life World, all one word. Hi, and welcome to Halfway to History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a podcast where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. So if you enjoy history and comedy, then do we have the show for you. We cover all sorts of topics from pop culture to ancient history with some fiction thrown in just for fun. Like episode 14, The Nefarious Nodule, where we play a choose-your-own-adventure game. Or episode 33, Water, Earth, Fire, Molasses, where I cover the Great Molasses Flood of 1919 in Boston. Or if you're into conspiracy theories, check out episode 11, Eldritch Witches, where I hunt down a teleporting ship. Or if you're feeling nostalgic, check out episode 15, You Meddling Nords, where I take a spin in the mystery machine with Scooby-Doo and the gang. Are you into science? Because I dive into the immortal genes of Henrietta Lacks in episode 18, Hella Big Dynamite. And for anyone who loves musicals as much as I, check out episode 22, Defying Ancestry, where I spend one short day talking about my favorite musical, Wicked. Halfway History is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcatcher. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfway History, or visit our website at halfwit-history.com. And as always, I've been your Halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you'll give us a listen. Bye! Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you, as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 42 of the Forgotten News Podcast. This is Jim. And this is Jessica. Thank you for joining us. Listeners, Jessica is co-hosting on this episode, mostly because Kit Karen has a lot of things going on right now. So I want to give her a little break prior 
to the next episode, which tentatively will be featuring a story with a lot of twists and turns. And for that reason, I want her to have plenty of time to prepare without being rushed or feeling overwhelmed. And Jessica was kind enough to step in and co-host this episode. Speaking of this episode, the one you are listening to right now, we are going to be featuring a story that we think is going to be fun, both for you and for us. By the way, listeners, you might remember that Jessica co-hosted with me a few weeks ago on our episode that featured spooky stories from listeners. Well, it turned out to be one of our most popular episodes so far this year. But the truth is, whenever we have an episode with any type of paranormal theme, we always get a pretty big jump in the number of listeners. However, on the other hand, I can't overlook the fact that Jessica has a lot of adoring fans. I mean, for example, you may know she has very popular and very funny accounts on Instagram and Twitter. And maybe all of the extra listeners might have been because they just can't get enough of her. Thank you, Jim. That's so kind of you to say. But I have to admit, as funny as I am, I don't think I could hold a candle in popularity to the ghosts and the ghouls uh, that were featured on the Halfway to Halloween episode. They were really the stars of the show. Listeners, in case you ever wondered what genuine modesty sounds like, that was genuine modesty. <laughs> now, let's move along. Listeners, I would like everyone to know that we at the Forgotten News Podcast are still very committed to social distancing. In fact, we are too cautious to only be six feet apart. So, I am recording in eastern Pennsylvania and Jim is in Northeast Ohio. We will not allow this podcast to be wiped out by the pandemic or anything else. Nope, no way. So, now, everyone, with that oath having been sworn, let's move along. Just pretend that we have given you a really fascinating segue, followed by a very dramatic pause. And on that note... Listeners, at this point, we will now ease into our featured story. I will start by saying that even though this is a true crime story... There will be no murders and no dead bodies. I thought we should mention that first, just in case 
that is where you draw the line. I will also tell you that there is probably nothing in this episode that would be scary for children. Other than learning that there are some people in the world who are dishonest. And with all of that having been said, on with the show. Listeners, I want you to think back and remember everyday life in the years before the coronavirus. In the morning and the afternoon, the streets of any large city would be alive with busy people going about the process of earning a daily living. And then, in the evening, until late at night, Many of those same people could be found searching for relaxation in the theaters, the restaurants, the taverns, the dance clubs, the cafes. But much later, when the law-abiding citizens had all gone home and were asleep in their beds, the city streets would take on a different aspect. The pavement is empty. The brightly colored lights have gone out. Deepening shadows take their places. Shadows that give shelter to human bats who emerge and blink their fiendish eyes. Then, until dawn, the streets are haunted by these shapes who fear the light. And on this episode, we're going to shed some light on two such shadowy figures, but one of whom was a bit more shadowy than the other. Our featured story revolves around two professional criminals in the late 19th century in New York City, specifically in 1876, which is the year at the center of our story. Their names were Sophie Lyons and Adam Wirth. However, since Adam was more commonly known by his alias, Harry Raymond, that is going to be the name that is used in our story in order to prevent any confusion or misunderstanding. Both of these two individuals had a long history of criminal activity. Harry and Sophie were professional thieves, swindlers, bank robbers, and con artists. Sophie was the daughter of immigrants from England. Both of her parents had lengthy careers as criminals in Baltimore and New York. Her father was a safecracker and sneak thief. Her mother supplemented the family income as a shoplifter and pickpocket. She taught Sophie these same skills beginning at age three. By the time she became a teenager, Sophie was an expert, including being able to fake any type of emotion, along with creative excuses that sounded entirely reasonable and legitimate 
to avoid being arrested. And with all of these very useful skills, Sophie left home at the tender age of 15 and successfully launched her own career of crime. Until, at the age of 17, Sophie met and married Ned Lyons, a very successful professional bank robber. And from then on, the two of them usually worked as a team. Now, at this point in time, by all accounts, Sophie was strikingly attractive, with a face that looked as innocent as a baby. This very probably helped to convince her victims not to press charges on the rare occasions when she was caught. Unfortunately, there are no photographs or drawings of Sophie from this period in her life, when she was in her teens and 20s. But there is a very colorful description that was published in a local newspaper, the New York Herald. Miss Lyons is a very beautiful girl, smart-looking with a sweet voice. She has a slow, easy kind of walk, like a panther looking for breakfast. Well, listeners, long story short, Sophie was no dummy. She knew how to use her beauty to her advantage, almost like a superpower in her life of crime. In fact, for this reason, New York police detectives had given her a nickname. Pretty Sophie. However, we think it is worth mentioning that she was very careful to stay clear of anything that involved committing violence or physical harm to anyone. Yet, in her long career, she was extremely successful as a jewel thief, a bank robber, and con artist, as well as many other similar criminal activities. But since a life of crime typically has many pitfalls, Sophie lost as much as she gained. She would be rich one year, then living in poverty a year later. So... For that reason, among others, Sophie eventually went straight. She not only reformed, but in the year 1913, she wrote a book about her previous life as a professional criminal and her many, many regrets. The book is titled, Why Crime Does Not Pay, and if you read it, Sophie tells all about her own experiences and the tragic lives of many of the career criminals that she had known or had been friends with. The first one of these associates, whose story is told in the book, is Harry Raymond, who we mentioned a few moments ago. And on this episode, we will not only be telling you his incredible life story and his two most famous robberies, but it will be told in the words of Sophie Lyons herself from chapter two of her book. However, we will first mention a few things that are not in the book. Harry Raymond was born in 1844 in Germany. He and his parents immigrated to the United States four years later. His father and mother were honest, hardworking people in other words, the exact opposite of Sophie's upbringing. 
He served in the Union Army during the American Civil War, but deserted in 1862. He apparently began his life of crime at this point, and it reached its height in the 1870s and 1880s. Harry Raymond always spoke in a highly elegant style, as if he had graduated from the finest schools of education and charm that were available to young men at the time. And he always seemed to be dressed in the latest fashions and often wore diamonds on his fingers and clothing. But unfortunately, he used all of his vast intelligence and pleasant personality to perpetrate frauds, robberies, and swindles. His first major crime was the very clever robbery of the Boylston National Bank, Boston, Massachusetts, in 1869. But his most famous crime was the theft of a painting called The Duchess of Devonshire. This portrait by the artist Thomas Gainsborough had been painted in 1787, but was somehow lost for many years until 1876, when it was rediscovered and put on display at the art gallery of Thomas Agnew in London, England. The theft of the painting occurred very shortly afterward. The current value of this portrait is over $1 million. And our featured story will tell exactly how we pulled it off. The story will be told by a guest narrator. However, the name of the narrator will not be revealed until after the end of the story in order to avoid distracting from the story itself. And now, listeners, with all of that being said, here is our featured story. It was on the morning of May 15, 1876, that the manager of Agnew's Great Art Gallery in London turned the key in the lock of the private gallery to show an art patron the famous Gainsborough. His amiable smile faded from his lips as he came face to face with an empty gilt frame. The great $125,000 painting had been cut from its frame. Who stole this masterpiece? How was it stolen? Could it be recovered? The best detectives of Europe and America were asked to find answers to these questions. They never did. I will answer them here for the first time today. The man who cut the Gainsborough from its frame was a millionaire. He was an associate of mine. He was a bank burglar. Adam Worth, or Harry Raymond, as he was known to his friends, did not need the money, and he did not want the painting. He entered the London Art Gallery at three o'clock in the morning, and took that roll of canvas out, under his arm, for a purpose that no one suspected. I'll explain all of this presently. Among all of my old acquaintances and associates in the criminal world, perhaps no one serves better as an example of the truth that crime does not pay than this very millionaire burglar, this man who has earned the title of the Prince of Safe Blowers. 
For a time, he seemed to have everything his heart could desire. A mansion, servants, liveried equipages, a yacht. And it all crumbled away like a house of cards. Vanished like the wealth of Aladdin in the Arabian Nights. And so Raymond, the most successful bank robber of the day, lived to learn the lesson that crime does not pay. Raymond was a Massachusetts boy, bright, wide awake, but headstrong. Born of an excellent family and well-educated, he formed bad habits and developed a passion for gambling. He was unable to learn, honestly, all that he needed to gratify his passion for gambling. So Raymond soon drifted into the companionship of some professional thieves, whom he had met in the army. From that time, his downfall was rapid. He never earned another honest dollar. Like myself and many other criminals, who later achieved notoriety in broader fields, he first tried picking pockets. He had good teachers and was an apt pupil. His long, slender fingers seemed just made for the delicate task of slipping watches out of men's pockets and purses out of women's handbags. Soon he had plenty of money and a wide reputation for his cleverness in escaping arrest. Aside from his love of faro and roulette, Raymond was always a prudent, thrifty man. In those early days he picked pockets so skillfully and disposed of his booty to the fences so shrewdly that it was not long before he had enough capital to finance other criminals. The first manifestation of the executive ability, which was one day to make him a power in the underworld, was his organization of a band of pickpockets. Raymond's word was law, with the little group of young thieves he gathered around him. He furnished the brains to keep them out of trouble and the cash to get them out, if by chance they got in. Every morning they met at the little Canal Street restaurant to take their orders from him. At night they came back to hand him a liberal share of the day's earnings. But even the enormous profits of this syndicate of pickpockets were not enough to satisfy Raymond's restless ambition. He began to cast envious eyes at men like my husband, Ned Lyons, Big Jim Brady, Dan Noble, Tom Bigelow, and other bank sneaks and burglars whom he met in the places where criminals gather. These men were big, strong, good-looking fellows. Their work looked easy. It was certainly exciting. They had long intervals of leisure and were always well supplied with money. If these men can make a good living robbing banks, thought Raymond, why can't I? It was through Raymond's itching to get into bank work that I first met him. One day he came into a restaurant where my husband and I were sitting, and Mr. Lyons introduced him to me. I myself saw little in him to impress me, but when he had gone, my husband said, That fellow will be a great thief some day. It was hard for a young man to get a foothold with an organized party of bank robbers, for the more experienced men were reluctant to risk their chance of success by bringing on a beginner. No doubt you're all right, they told him, but you can see yourself that we can't afford to have anybody around that hasn't had experience in our line of business. It's too risky for us, and it wouldn't be fair to you. But how am I going to get experience if some of you chaps don't give me a chance, Raymond replied. Still he got no encouragement from my husband and his companions. All right, he finally said one day, I'll show you what I can do. I won't be asking to be taken in with you. No, you will be asking me. 
So Raymond, in order to get experience, cheerfully made up his mind to make his first attempt in that line alone. He broke into an express company's office on Liberty Street and forced open a safe, containing $30,000 in gold. The inner box, however, in which the money was kept, proved too much for Raymond's limited experience. To his great disgust, daylight came before he was able to get it open. Tired and mad, Raymond trudged home in the gray of the morning, dusty, greasy, and with his tools under his arm. The newspapers printed the full details of the curious failure to reach the funds in the express company's safe. Ned Lyons and his companions guessed very quickly whose work that was. Meeting Raymond a few days later, they accused him of having done the bungling job. He admitted that the joke was on him, and they all laughed loudly at his efforts to get some experience. "'You're all right,' said Big Jim Brady. "'You've got the right idea, and that's the only way to learn. Keep at it, and you'll make a name for yourself some day.' His next undertaking was more successful. From the safe of an insurance company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, his native town, he took $20,000 in cash. This established him as a bank burglar, and he soon became associated with a gang of expert cracksmen, including Ike Marsh, Bob Cochran, and Charlie Bullard. Raymond was very proud of having gotten a footing among the big bank burglars, whom he had long looked upon with respect and envy. After several minor robberies, Raymond became uneasy, and declared that he wanted to do a really big job that would be worthwhile. Something that would astonish the police, and would merit the respect of the big professional bank burglars. Being a native of Massachusetts, he decided to give his attention to something in his own state. He made a tour of inspections of all the Boston banks, and decided that the famous Boylston Bank, the biggest in the city, would suit him. And in picking this great bank, Raymond had indeed selected an undertaking which would be worthy of his skill and daring. On Washington Street, Raymond's quick eye at once discovered a vacant shop adjoining the Boylston Bank. He rented this shop, ostensibly for a patent medicine laboratory, filled the windows with bottles of bitters, and built a partition across the back of the shop. The partition was to hide the piles of debris which would accumulate as the robbers burrowed into the bank next door, the bottles in the window to prevent passerbys seeing too much of the interior. When news of this clever ruse of Raymond's came out in the papers, after the robbery, I made a note of it and used the same idea years later in robbing a bank in Illinois. Careful measurements had shown where the tunneling through the thick walls of the bank could best be bored. Work was done only at night, and in a week's time only a thin coating of plaster separated them from the treasure. The robbers entered the vault on Saturday night, broke open three safes which they found there, and escaped with a million dollars in cash and securities. After this crime, America was not safe for Raymond, so he and his comrades, including Charlie Bullard, fled to Europe. In Paris, Bullard opened a gambling house, and there Raymond lived, when the criminal ventures from which he was amassing his first fortune permitted. And now there entered into Raymond's life a very remarkable romance, which almost caused him to reform. In one of the big Parisian hotels at the time was an Irish barmaid named Kate Kelly, 
She was an unusually beautiful girl, a dashing blonde of much the same type as Lillian Russell was years ago. Bullard and Raymond both fell madly in love with her. The race for her favor was a close one. Despite the fact that Bullard was an accomplished musician, spoke several languages fluently, and was, in other ways, Raymond's superior. The scales, however, were surely turning in Raymond's favor when the rumor that he was a bank robber reached Kate's ears. Raymond admitted this was the truth. But he never attempted to take advantage of his friend Bullard by telling Kate that he also was a thief. That was characteristic of the man. Criminal though he was, he never stooped to anything mean or underhanded, and would stand by his friends through thick and thin. Instead of trying to drag Bullard into disappointment with him, he pleaded with Kate to forgive his past and help him make a fresh start. Marry me, he urged, and I'll never commit another crime. We'll go to some distant land, and I'll start all over again, in a decent, honorable business. But Kate was not persuaded. She couldn't marry a self-confessed thief. No, never. A month later, she married Bullard, little dreaming of how glad the American police would be to lay their hands on him. Raymond was best man at the wedding, and to his credit it should be said that the bridal couple had no more sincerer well-wisher than he. Kate never realized how she had been deceived until several years later, when Bullard was given a prison sentence for running a crooked gambling house. She got an inkling of the facts then, and her husband confessed the rest. By that time, however, she had two small children, and her anxiety for them impelled her to become reconciled to the situation and stick with her husband. After his release, they left the children in a French school, returned to this country, and took a brownstone house at the corner of Cumberland Street and DeKalb Avenue in Brooklyn. Here they installed all the costly furniture, bric-a-brac, and paintings which would have made Bullard's gambling house one of the show places of Paris. Soon afterward, Raymond also came to America, although there was a price on his head for his share in the Boyston Bank robbery. He lived with Kate and Bullard until the latter's jealousy caused a quarrel. He then went to London and laid the foundation for the International Clearing House of Crime, which for years had its headquarters in his luxurious apartment in Piccadilly. With Raymond's cool, calculating brain no longer there to guide him, Bullard became reckless and fell into the hands of the police. He was sentenced to twenty years in prison. For her own and for her children's support, his wife had nothing except the rich contents of the Brooklyn home. She tried various ways of making a living, with poor success, and was, at last, forced to offer a quantity of her paintings for sale in an art store on 23rd Street. In this store, one day, she met Antonio Terry. His father was an Irishman, his mother a native of Havana, and he had inherited millions of dollars in Cuban sugar plantations. Young Terry was infatuated with Kate's queenly beauty, and he laid siege to her heart so ardently that she divorced her convict husband and married him. Two children blessed this exceedingly happy marriage. And before Terry died, he divided his fortune equally among his wife, his own children, and the children she had had by her first husband. Kate Terry lived until 1895 and left an estate valued at $6 million. 
She passed her last years in a magnificent mansion on Fifth Avenue, surrounded by every luxury. Kate Kelly's refusal to marry Raymond was one of the great disappointments in his unhappy life. He married another woman, but I'm sure he never forgot the winsome Irish barmaid who had won his heart in Paris. "'What's the news of Kate?' used to be his first question, whenever I arrived in London, and his face would fall if something prevented my seeing her on my last visit to New York. If this woman had become Raymond's wife, I am confident that the whole course of his life would have changed, and that the world would have something to remember him for other than an unbroken record of crime. As I have said, Raymond had not been long in London before he had forced his way into a commanding position in the criminal world. The cleverest thieves of every nation sought him out as soon as they set foot in England. They sought his advice, carried out his orders, and gladly shared with him the profits of their illegal enterprises. Crimes in every corner of the globe were planned in his luxurious home. And there, often, the final division of booty was made. No crime seemed too difficult or too daring for Raymond to undertake. It was his almost unbroken record of success in getting large amounts of plunder and in escaping punishment from crimes that gave the underworld such confidence in him and made all the cleverest criminals his accomplices. Another reason for his leadership was his unwavering loyalty to his friends. Raymond never squealed. He never deserted a friend. When one of his associates ran foul of the law, he would give as freely of his brains and money to secure his release as if his own liberty were at stake. It was his loyalty to a friend, a thief named Tom Warren, which led to his bold theft of the famous Gainsborough portrait, for which J. Pierpont Morgan later paid $125,000. Here is how it came about. Warren was in jail in London for his share of one of Raymond's forgeries. He was a great favorite of Raymond's, and Harry vowed he would have him out before the case ever came to trial. This, however, was no easy matter, because England is not like this country, where almost anyone can furnish bond. The bondsman in England must be a freeholder of good reputation. While Raymond was searching his fertile brain for some way out of this difficulty, he and an English thief named Jack Phillips happened to be walking through Bond Street, and noticed the large number of fashionable carriages stopping at the art gallery of Agnew and Company. To satisfy their curiosity, they entered the gallery and found that everybody was crowding around a wonderful portrait of the Duchess of Devonshire, painted by the master hand of the great artist Gainsborough. It was Gainsborough's masterpiece, and the gallery was considering a number of bids that had been made for the painting. They had one offer of $100,000 from an American, but they were holding it on exhibition in the belief that a still better bid would be made. Raymond stood long and thoughtfully on the edge of the crowd, studied the painting, took in the doors, walls, windows, chatted with an attendant, and slowly sauntered out, swinging his cane. "'I have the idea,' exclaimed Raymond the instant they were in the street again. "'We'll steal that painting and use it as a club,' to compel the Agnews to post bail for Tom Warren. "'You don't want that picture,' said Phillips. "'It's a clumsy thing to do anything with.' Raymond replied, "'Of course I don't want the picture, but Agnew does. "'If I get it and send word that Tom Warren, who is now in jail, knows where it's hidden, 
Don't you suppose Agnew will hurry down to the Old Bailey prison, bail poor Tom out mighty quick, and pay him something besides if Warren digs up the picture for him? He might, admitted Phillips. Why, of course he will, persisted Raymond. And it's the only way I can see to make sure of getting Tom Warren out before he's called for trial. When they try him, they'll convict him, and then it's too late. Phillips was not enthusiastic over the scheme. In the first place, he thought it too risky. Even if they did succeed in getting the picture, he feared it would prove an elephant on their hands. Raymond, however, was a man who seldom reversed a decision, no matter how quickly it had been made. He argued away Philip's objections, and with the assistance of Joe Elliot, a forger whom they took into their confidence, they proceeded with their plans for the robbery. It was decided to make the attempt on the first dark, foggy night. Elliot was to be the lookout and keep a watchful eye for any of the army of policemen and private detectives who guarded the gallery's treasures. Phillips was to serve as the stepladder. On his broad, powerful shoulders, the light, agile Raymond would mount like a circus performer, climb through the window, and cut the precious canvas out of the frame. It was a job fraught with the greatest danger, for the gallery was carefully protected with locks and bars, and besides, no one could tell when a policeman or detective might appear on the scene. A thick fog settled down on the city the night of May 15th, 1876. Under its cover, the thieves decided to make their descent on the gallery early the next morning. Just as the clocks were striking three, Raymond stole cautiously into the alley at the rear of the Agnew Gallery. There he was joined, after a judicious interval, by his two comrades. Elliot remained near the mouth of the alley to watch for any bobbies. Raymond and Philip stealthily made their way over to the back fence, to the rear window, whose sill was about eight feet from the ground. Straining his ears for any ominous sound, Phillips braced his big body to bear Raymond's weight. Then he made a stirrup of his hand, and Raymond sprang like a cat to his shoulders. Crouching in the darkness, Elliot watched and waited while Raymond applied his jimmy to the window. Click, went the fastenings, but not too loud. The sash was cautiously raised, and Harry Raymond dropped to the floor inside. Unluckily for the owners of the Gainsborough, the watchmen were asleep on the upper floor. Raymond, with the clever thief's characteristic caution, first groped his way to the front door to see if he could unfasten it, and thus provide a second avenue for escape for use in emergency. But the locks and bars were too much for him, and he gave up the attempt. By the dim rays of his dark lantern, he could see the gallery's pride, the famous Gainsborough, hanging on what picture dealers know as the line, that is to say, about five feet from the floor. The place was as quiet as the grave. A sudden sound gave Raymond a start, but it was only a cat that came mewing out of the darkness. Outside, a cab rattled by, and the heavy tread of a policeman's feet echoed through the street. Raymond procured a table which he placed before the portrait. By standing upon it, he was barely able to reach the top. With a long, sharp knife, he carefully slashed the precious canvas, removing it from its heavy gold frame. At one of the bottom corners, Raymond's knife made a series of peculiar zigzags. 
Later he cut from the portrait a little piece that matched these jagged lines. This was to send to the Agnews as evidence that he really had the picture. After cutting the picture out, Raymond rolled it up carefully, tied it with a string, and buttoned it underneath his coat. Then he went out the same way he had entered, being careful to close the window behind him. With his companions, he returned to his Piccadilly house. He then hid in a closet the picture which he hoped would ransom his friend. The next morning, all of London was in a fever of excitement over the loss of the Gainsborough. The Agnews offered $5,000 for its return, and soon increased the reward to 15000 A hundred of the best detectives in Scotland Yard scoured the city looking for clues. Yet the crime remained shrouded in mystery. The doors of the gallery had not been tampered with. The fastenings of a rear window were broken, but the watchman declared that no thief could have entered there, as they had been sitting close by all night. In all London, the only persons who had no theories to advance as to the fate of the Gainsborough were Raymond, Phillips, and Elliot. They quietly waited for the excitement to fade, realizing that, with the public mind in its present state, it was altogether too hazardous to think of attempting to negotiate for the return of the picture. Meanwhile, something happened to make the Gainsborough no use to Raymond. His friend Warren was released from jail through the discovery of a technicality in his indictment. The famous portrait now had become a veritable white elephant. Raymond dared not return it. He feared to leave it in storage, lest someone recognize it. So he carried the roll of canvas with him, all around the world, until later when, through the aid of Pat Sheedy, he returned it to the Agnews and secured $25,000 for his pains. And that is the history of what happened to Gainsborough's famous painting, The Duchess of Devonshire, which is now in the private art gallery of J. Pierpont Morgan on Madison Avenue, New York. As I said earlier, Raymond, who stole it, neither wanted the picture nor the money it represented. Raymond cut that painting from its frame as an act of loyalty to a fellow thief who was in trouble, so as to use it as a powerful lever to make sure of getting Tom Warren out of prison. And right here, before going any further with the episode of Raymond's remarkable career, let me explain the mystery of how Pat Sheedy, a New York gambler, happened to be the person who sold the stolen Gainsborough back to the Agnews. Long before that, Pat Sheedy and Harry Raymond had done much business together. After Sheedy had accumulated a fortune by gambling, he built up a large and exceedingly profitable business in the sale of stolen paintings. Through his wide acquaintance, he found a convenient connecting link between the rich men who could afford to buy rare paintings and the clever criminals who knew how to steal them. Raymond took up the stealing of paintings when he became too old and too well known to the police to attempt more profitable kinds of robbery, and it was through Shady that he disposed of most of them. A number of years before Raymond died, he met me in London and asked if I could do some business for him. Being in need of ready money, I readily agreed. He took me to his apartments and handed me two paintings, which showed at a glance that they had been cut from their frames. I got these from a cathedral in Antwerp, said Raymond. I want you to take them to New York and sell them to Pat Sheedy for $75,000. If you won't give that, bring them back to me. I'll pay you well for your time and trouble. 
Accordingly, I sailed for New York. And by wrapping the pictures in some old clothes at the bottom of my trunk, I got them by the customs inspectors without any trouble. I had then never met Sheedy, and it occurred to me that if I had to leave the pictures with him, he might try to take advantage of my ignorance of art by substituting copies for the originals. So before setting out for Sheedy's office on 42nd Street, I took an indelible pencil and marked my initials, very small, on the back of each canvas. As I had expected, Sheedy asked me to leave the pictures until the next day, as he wasn't sure he could afford the $75,000 for them. The next day he put me off with some excuse, and so it went on, for two weeks, until I felt sure something was wrong. Then, one morning, he handed me two pictures, saying, "'Sorry, I don't think these are worth more than $10,000. If you'll take that for them, I'll buy them.' Of course, I told him my instructions were not to take a cent less than $75,000, and if he didn't want to pay that, I would have to take them back to London.' I was about to roll them up when I chanced to think of looking for my initials. They were not there. Sheedy was trying to palm off cheap copies on me in place of the original. Quick as a flash, I pulled out the revolver that I always carried in those days. I shoved it right under Sheedy's nose and told him, Come, Mr. Sheedy, hand over the original paintings I left with you, or I'll blow your head off. He was considerably amazed at this warlike nerve on my part, but he still had nerve enough left to argue that those were the pictures I had given him. But I was not to be tricked like that. Finally, he went into an adjoining room, and I after him, with the gun in my hand. He pulled open a drawer and took out the canvases, which had my initials on the back. I carried them back to London, where Raymond sold them for $75,000, of which he gave me 10000 I sold many stolen paintings to Sheedy after that, but he never tried to take advantage of me again. Raymond often used to tell that all of his bad luck dated from the night he stole the famous Gainsborough. If the portrait really was a hoodoo, its evil influence certainly took a long time in taking effect. The two or three years after his robbery of the Agnew Gallery, where when he committed the most daring crimes of his life, and the money they yielded made him a multimillionaire. Even his heavy losses at Monte Carlo did not seriously affect a fortune which had been steadily increased by all sorts of illegal undertakings. He lived like a prince in London and Paris. He owned several racehorses and maintained, besides a sailing yacht, an enormous steam-powered yacht operated by a crew of twenty men. He liked to vary the monotony of his cruises by deeds of piracy, as sensational as any Captain Kidd ever attempted. On one such occasion he robbed a post office on the Isle of Malta, and on another he attempted to loot a warehouse on the docks of Kingston, Jamaica. This exploit could have ended in his capture by a British gunboat, which pursued him for twenty miles, had his yacht not been a remarkably speedy craft. Raymond was a natural leader of men. He had a sharp eye for able assistance. In his gangs were the greatest experts he could collect around him. Raymond was not a technically educated machinist, and he felt the need of an expert mechanic. For a number of years he watched the work of various other bank burglars and gave a special attention to any work that showed particular mechanical skill in getting into locks and steel safes. Finally, Raymond got his eye on a very promising young burglar named Mark Shinburn, 
who turned out to be a perfect wonder of a safe-opener. Shinburn had served as apprentice in a machine shop, and soon got a job in the factory of the Lily Safe Company. Locks and safes had a peculiar fascination for Shinburn, and he rapidly mastered the whole scheme, theory, and practice of lock-making, and knew the weak points not only of the locks his own company made, but also of all the other big safe-makers whose locks and safes were on the market. Shinburn was just the man to fit into Raymond's band of experts. He had the peculiar and valuable technical knowledge that Raymond lacked. Raymond would select a bank, study the habits of the bank clerks, survey the situation, and lay out the plans for the job. Raymond would execute all of these preliminaries and would lead his men into the bank and face-to-face with the safe. But at this point, Shinburn would bring his genius into action, and Raymond would stand by holding his dark lantern and watching Shinburn with silent admiration. Raymond and Shinburn were the moving spirits of the bold gang which robbed the Ocean Bank in New York of a million dollars. With them were associates Jimmy Hope, who later led the attack on the Manhattan Bank, my husband, Ned Lyons, George Bliss, and several others. On his return from a series of bank robberies on the continent, Raymond took apartments in the house of a widow who lived with her two daughters in Bayswater, a suburb of London. He became in time much attached to this woman and her children, and lavished every luxury on them, including the education of the girls in the best French schools. For years, this family never suspected that their benefactor was a criminal, but supposed him to be a prosperous diamond importer. When the eldest daughter's education was finished, Raymond married her. She was a beautiful woman, but a weak, clinging sort of creature, very different from the strong, self-willed Kate Kelly. Although passionately fond of her, Raymond's attitude toward her was always that of a devoted father rather than a loving husband. After his marriage, Raymond made many sincere attempts to reform. He became a student of art and literature, and for months at a time would live quietly in his London house or on board his yacht. Then the old life would call him. He would mysteriously drop out of sight for a few weeks, and with the aid of some of his old associates, add another crime to his record. On one of these occasions, he and John Curtin, a desperate burglar, went to Liege, Belgium. Their object was the robbery of a wagon, which carried a large amount of valuable registered mail. Raymond had fitted a key to the lock on the wagon, and had sent a decoy package, whose delivery would necessitate the driver leaving the mail unguarded at a certain place. Curtin was to delay the driver's return, while Raymond climbed up on the front of the wagon and rifled the pouches. But Curtin carelessly failed to carry out part of his assignment, and the driver caught Raymond in the act. He was arrested, convicted, and given the first and only prison sentence he ever received— eight years of hard labor. With the loyalty for which he was famous, Raymond steadfastly refused to reveal the identity of the Confederate to whose folly he owed his arrest, and Curtin escaped to England. Soon after his sentence began, rumors reached Raymond in prison of the undue intimacy of his wife and Curtin. He investigated the reports and found them true. Raging with indignation at his wife's weakness and his friend's treachery, he broke his lifelong habit of loyalty. 
he confessed to the authorities Curtin's share in the attempted robbery and told them where he could be found. Curtin was brought back to Belgium and sentenced to five years in prison. Mrs. Raymond's mind gave way under its weight of remorse, and soon after her husband's release she died in an asylum. This was not the only crushing misfortune the released convict had to face. Through unfortunate investments and the dishonesty of friends he had trusted, his fortune had dwindled to almost nothing. He had to sell his yachts, his horses, and his London house, with its fine library and art galleries, in order to raise enough to provide for the education of his three children. He sent them to America, where they grew to manhood and womanhood, in ignorance of the truth about their father. With an energy worthy of a better cause, Raymond at once set about making a new fortune. The whole world was his field. Forgeries, bank robberies, and jewel thefts were his favorite methods. But the nervous strain under which he had always lived, and the long prison term, were beginning to tell on him. His health was poor. His hand and brain were losing much of their cunning. Each crime made the next one more difficult, as the police got to know him and his methods better, and at last he was forced to abandon the bolder forms of robbery and devote his time entirely to the theft of famous paintings. Yet in the face of these handicaps, Raymond made in those last years of his life several fortunes. But one after another, they were all swept away as quickly as they were made, and he died, as I have said, penniless. Did crime pay Harry Raymond? He invested his natural endowment of brains, resourcefulness, daring, energy, and perseverance in criminal enterprises, and died a haunted, hungry, trembling outcast. One half of his industry and intelligence spent in honest business would have ensured him a great and enduring fortune and a respected name. The many episodes of the misguided life and criminal career of Harry Raymond all illuminate one great and inevitable fact. Crime does not pay. That was a wild story. Harry Raymond was a literal genius of crime. And... Not only that, he was the inspiration for the character of Moriarty, the criminal mastermind in the stories of Sherlock Holmes. The police in Great Britain called him the Napoleon of the crime world. But in the long run, none of it worked out for him. Harry Raymond seemed to have almost an addiction to committing crime. And he made a fortune, in fact, several fortunes during his lifetime. But he ended up losing literally everything. He died in 1902 and was buried in a graveyard for the poor in London. Just imagine the crimes that someone with his level of intelligence would be able to do today especially with the internet and his ability to dupe all sorts of gullible people. I tend to agree with you, Jim, especially with the internet and everything now. I think 
his level of intelligence and skills, so to speak, would translate to today? Well, I'll just say this. As far as Harry Raymond, I think he was one of a kind. I just can't think of anyone like him at all. As a true crime fan, I certainly can't think of any other nonviolent professional criminal in history who was as successful or who then lost everything he had gained. And as far as any similar modern-day criminal, there might be one out there. But I can't think of any off the top of my head, at least as far as nonviolent criminal. I think that he would be a very successful criminal in our time. And with that comment, I think we have basically exhausted our combined pool of knowledge in regard to this entire topic. It's time to move on. But first, we would like to thank our guest narrator on our featured story. So please take a bow, introduce yourselves, and tell our listeners anything that you would like them to know about you. Hi, this is Moxie Labouche from Your Brain on Facts, your guest narrator for today. If you enjoyed hearing the sound of my voice and would like to hear something more factual rather than fictional, please check out Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks again. Yes, thank you very much. And now, listeners... We will move on to the latest edition of our regular segment, Police Blotter and Court News, in which we bring you stories of small-time crooks and other random folks who, for one reason or another, ended up in the machinery of the justice system a hundred or more years ago. And this particular segment will be narrated for you exactly as it was written in a column published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer on July 19, 1859, in the words of the anonymous reporter who wrote it. However, before we begin the segment, we will mention three things. First, we will once again remind you that in the 19th century, it was very common for reporters or editors to insert their opinions into their descriptions of the news. And you will very definitely hear this type of commentary throughout the reporting in this column. Next, any time that you hear any amount of money described in this segment, please be aware that $1 in 1859 is the equivalent of approximately $30 in the present day. Finally, we will now give a short warning to our listeners. The stories that you will hear in this police blotter and court news segment are essentially a slice of life from the dark streets and overlooked alleys of everyday life in the mid-19th century. So, on this particular segment, you will hear various mentions of drunkenness, prostitution, and juvenile crime. Listeners, if you think that hearing about any of these things might possibly 
cause you to have a negative emotional reaction, then this segment might not be something that you should listen to. So, if that is the case, just skip ahead roughly seven minutes from now, give or take a few minutes, and it will all be over. And, for the same reasons, parental discretion is strongly advised for any children who might be nearby. Since there are some portions of this segment which young ears probably should not be listening to. And so, with all of that having been said, here we go. Police blotter and court news. Water on the court. Water on the court. Municipal court, Cleveland, Ohio, July 19. 1859. William McGuire was charged with being drunk in public. He was fined $5, together with court costs. Maria Carl, Julia McCarthy, Mary Hines, and Kate Schrader, who frequently spend their evenings as nymphs of the pavement, were charged with public disturbance. They were each fined $25 and court costs. Their companions, William Cathan and Hugh Hart, were charged with the same offense. They were each sentenced to pay court costs, but with fines waived. <laughs> William McCain and John Collins were charged and found guilty of vagrancy. The court sentenced them to 30 days in jail, which would be waived on condition of leaving the city within 24 hours. Mrs. Catherine Sullivan, an Irish woman residing at the bottom of the hill on the west side of town, came to Marshall Craw yesterday morning to ask the interposition of the police in rescuing her child, a girl of 14 years of age, from a house of prostitution. Her mother also says that the girl was horsewhipped on more than one occasion by the keeper of the place, namely William Alexander, alias Elephant Bill, and that she was compelled to submit to indecencies from the disreputable and vicious persons who regularly patronized the premises. The name of the girl is Honora Sullivan, who it seems has not been reared under the wholesome restraints which all good mothers impose upon their daughters at such a tender period of life, but left to run the streets in idleness surrounded by temptations and accompanied by vicious associates. The result was what might have been expected. She was encountered by one of the many fiends in human shape which infest our city and was then enticed into a low dance house on River Street. While there, she was compelled in the daytime to submit to the violation of her person by brutal men. A short time later, John Burke, a notorious pickpocket who was sent to jail for theft, obtained a license and married this girl soon after his release. How he obtained the license we are not informed, but probably through falsely swearing as to the age of the girl. He soon deserted her and ran away from the city. She remained at the dance house until yesterday when she was arrested by the marshal. Honora was brought before the court this morning, charged with being a common prostitute. Mr. Bartlett, the keeper of the dance house on River Street, denied having any part in ruining the girl and said that her conduct appeared to him to be unexceptionable. The charge against Honora was dismissed by the court for lack of evidence, 
despite the testimony of police officers that this girl is a very bad character and that when confronted by her mother, Honora assailed her in a most abusive manner. Editor's Note It is to be regretted that we have no house of refuge or reform school where young girls of this description can be placed for reformation. Imprisonment is worse than useless. Punishment of any kind is not what is needed. All such unfortunates should be placed beyond the evil influences which have surrounded them in some secure retreat where they would be taught by wholesome discipline to shun vice and become virtuous as useful members of society. I hereby declare this court is adjourned. And that brings us to the end of the police blotter and court news from July 19, 1859. We hope that this short visit to some of the dim, dusty, and rowdy side streets of yesteryear was an interesting and educational experience for you. Jessica, I was listening to that story about Honora Sullivan on the police blotter, and when I was thinking about that, and also the story of Sophie Lyons, the thought occurred to me that even though we typically think of the 19th century as being a time when young women and girls would lead very sheltered lives, it must also have been a time when it was pretty easy for a young woman or a teenage girl to slide into a life of crime or degradation, especially if you were poor or a member of a poor family. In these days, it was a common occurrence for young women to go from their father's house to their husband's house. But if you don't have a father and you don't have a husband, and in this time you don't have someone caring for you, you have to care for yourself and Options for women during this time were very, very limited. So it's definitely no wonder that many of these young women and girls easily drifted into crime or prostitution. Absolutely. This was a point in time when a life of crime or sex work might be the only way for a young woman to earn a living that was above the poverty level. For example, in the 1870s, the median weekly wage for a young woman working in a retail store would be barely enough to pay the rent for a week at even a cheap boarding house. But in sex work, for example, they could make far more than in any type of regular job that was available to young women at the time. Well, I think our listeners get the point. But getting back to the specific case of Honora Sullivan, we thought you might like to know that she did not remain a wild child or a sex worker. In 1864, when she was 18, she married a man named William Morrison at St. John's Episcopal Church in Cleveland and settled down. However, Unfortunately, that is all we know in regard to either of them. 
because for some reason their names do not appear ever again in any official records of any type, not even the U.S. Census, nor were they ever mentioned in any newspaper. We wish we could tell you more, but it is as if they both vanished into thin air. Sorry about that. Oh well. So, with that being said, let's move on. We would like to express our deepest thanks to our guest narrator and our guest voices on the police blotter segment. Please take a bow and tell our listeners anything that you want to say about yourselves. This is Sam from the Spooky Adventures of Alec and Sam. You want to go on some spooky adventures? Well, then join us. Spooky adventuring once a week just for you. Kim Wellman, freelance voice artist. Email kwell331 at gmail.com. The letter K, then W-E-L-L-331 at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Listeners, we would like to be able to tell police blotter stories from the 19th century newspapers of your city or town. So, if you have the time and ability, just send one to us by email, and we promise to use it as soon as we can. Next, we will now move on to our recommendations and advice segment. Jim and I will each take a few moments to mention something that we think our listeners might be interested in hearing about or knowing about. I will go first, then Jim. Listeners, my recommendation this week is for a new Netflix TV series called Warrior Nun about a girl, a reluctant hero who was chosen to fight evil. Um... I understand how it sounds, but if you like The Witcher, if you like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if you are into a battle between good and evil and need an escape from reality, please allow me to recommend The Warrior Nun on Netflix. Listeners, I'm going to recommend a podcast that I have recently begun listening to. Now, I normally don't really care for podcasts that are produced by networks with a lot of money behind them. But in this case, I'm going to make an exception. So on that note, I'm going to recommend a podcast called Missing in Alaska. It is the story of two congressmen who vanished when their plane crashed somewhere in Alaska in 1972. And perhaps the even bigger mystery is the fact that the plane itself has not been found in all of these years, let alone anyone who was on the plane. It is an incredible mystery. And this podcast explores that mystery. And on each episode, you learn another piece of the puzzle. And along the way, they ask listeners who might have valuable information to contact the show and help in whatever way they can. It's a great show. It's called Missing in Alaska, and I encourage you to check it out. 
And that is the end of the recommendation and advice segment for this episode. But listeners, if you have a suggestion for something that you would like us to mention on this segment, just send us an email. And if it's a good recommendation, we'll pass it along to our audience. And thank you in advance for doing that. Now, moving along, we will once again ask you, our wonderful listeners, to take a moment when this episode is over and go to iTunes, then rate, review, and subscribe to the Forgotten News Podcast. But five-star reviews only, please, because it definitely helps bring new listeners and gives us a bump in the ratings. Next, if you have any thoughts or opinions about this episode or any prior episode or any suggestions about the show, just send an email to ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Twitter. Just type Forgotten News Podcast in the search box and you'll find us. We always like hearing from our listeners. By the way, if you'd like to contact or chat with me about anything, you can reach me on all social media platforms at XOXOJessicaXOXO, or I am TexasJess at gmail.com. And now what? Nothing. Let's wrap it up. Okay, listeners, thanks for tuning in. My only departing thoughts are crime truly doesn't pay. You go through all that trouble and you still get buried in a poor man's graveyard. And on that note, goodbye, everyone. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay six feet away from everybody. Stay safe and you'll stay alive. And remember, history is no mystery. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. respect property. They merely want the property to become their property so that they may more perfectly respect it.